before we get going, here's the bit where I remind you that nothing we discussed should be considered as investment advice. This conversation is for informational and hopefully entertainment purposes only. So while we hope you find it both informative and entertaining, please do your own research or speak to a financial advisor before putting a dime of your money into these crazy markets. You're about to listen to a special preview edition of the Grant Williams podcast featuring my very special guest, Brendan Ballou. Brendan is a federal prosecutor uh, and has served as a special counsel for private equity in the Justice Department's Antitrust Division. He graduated from Columbia and Stanford, and he has the unenviable task of taking on private equity in a world where they are just so, so dominant. Brendan's book, Plunder, Private Equity's Plan to Pillage America, goes on sale the 2nd of May. And this conversation is a little taste of what can be found inside the book. And I, for one, found it an immensely enjoyable and deeply fascinating conversation. Every episode of the Grant Williams podcast, including The Endgame, The Super Terrific Happy Hour, The Narrative Game, This Week in Doom and Shifts Happen, is available to copper and silver tier subscribers at my website, grant-williams.com. Copper tier subscribers get access to all the podcasts, while members of the Silver Tier get both the podcast and my monthly newsletter, Things That Make You Go, Hmm. So, if you enjoy what you hear on the show and you want more high-quality content like it, then please make your way over to grant-williams.com and join our exciting community today. And now, on with the show. Uh, Brendan, welcome to the podcast. It's, uh, it's an absolute thrill to get a chance to talk to you. Well, thank you so much for the time. I really appreciate it. Well, this subject is something that um, anyone that reads my written work will understand uh, is very close to my heart, the subject of private equity, um, which has become such an enormous feature of uh, the global financial system and markets um, in particular. But before we get into that in the book, I'd love to get a little bit of your background to set that up for people who are about to eavesdrop on our little conversation here today. Of course. So I um, am an attorney over at the Justice Department. And I should say off the bat that my what we'll talk about today is my personal capacity, speaking my personal capacity doesn't necessarily reflect the the opinions of the federal government, of course. So uh, I was working in the antitrust division. And, um, you know, we review large mergers when one company wants to buy another antitrust and the Federal Trade Commission have a chance to look at it before it happens. And this was during the depths of quarantine. And I was looking at all these proposed acquisitions and they were by firms that I had never heard of, you know, Blackstone, Carlisle, KKR. And so I started to look into them and started to, you know, learn about the world of private equity and just how astoundingly large and ambitious private equity firms were and how they were sort of expanding into every part of the economy. And um, that's what got me started on this project. Yeah, it's interesting. I think for those of us in finance to whom those companies are household names, you know, we, we, we know those names so well. You know, it's interesting that they hadn't really come up so much on the Justice Department's radar up until that point. You know, you, one would have thought from the outside that they would have been just as familiar to you guys as they are to us. Well, I don't want to cast dispersions on the Justice Department. We can no, 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 sure, sure, sure. <laughs> yeah, no, no. But no, it's a, it's a good question because I think, you know, for folks in finance, you know, the names of Blackstone and KKR and Apollo and so forth are are household names. For those out outside, it's, you know, they're they're pretty mysterious. You know, it's pretty rare that you see a healthcare company be labeled as a Blackstone business or a nursing home chain labeled as a Carlisle company or what or what have you. And so I think for regulators, it's often easy to kind of see one big company in an industry buying another big company. When one healthcare company wants to buy another healthcare company, it's pretty obvious. 
when a private equity firm wants to buy one of these businesses, oftentimes we're, you know, they're businesses that we're not familiar with. And we're also not familiar with how the private equity business model works or what these firms are trying to accomplish. So look, take us inside the process in that antitrust department. So I think that'd be another good way of framing how it was slightly different with private. Because as you say, normally it's one big company taking another out. So take us inside that process of how the antitrust from the Department of Justice works in terms of analyzing these deals. Sure. And I can talk in generalities here without sure. getting Yeah, yeah. Any. No, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. So normally what will happen when the antitrust division or the FTC or any uh, regulator that deals with antitrust, state regulators also have a role to play here, will look at what are called HSR forms, Hart-Scott-Rodino forms, which is basically the application that a company set files with the government that says, you know, we propose to buy this business and it has above a certain revenue threshold. And traditionally, the analysis will be looking at how will competition or concentration in a specific industry change. So we were talking about healthcare. You know, if one hospital chain proposes to buy another hospital chain, we'll look at, okay, what's the geographic market? What service are these hospitals providing? Will the number of competitors meaningfully decrease to such an extent that it could violate the antitrust laws? That's the the traditional analysis here. The challenge that I think a lot of regulators have with private equity firms is, private equity firms are not one-to-one competitors with the businesses that they're buying for the most part. So, you know, the antitrust analysis isn't quite as obvious because, you know, at least on first blush, oftentimes it's not that there are going to be fewer competitors in a given market. And frankly, I think a lot of us that come from outside of finance don't really understand what a private equity firm is or what it's going to do to the business. Yeah, that makes an awful lot of sense. So so as you you kind of dug down this rabbit hole. Let's talk about your personal journey in understanding private equity, because that's the kind of crux of the book. It can be looked at as your personal journey and you talk about what you found. So take us along that journey with you. Sure. So I joke, you know, I didn't really understand what private equity was until, you know, probably halfway through this project. So perhaps to just set a baseline, maybe it'd be helpful for me to just say, at least, you know, my interpretation of the traditional leverage buyout model and then how, how I sort of went down this journey. So Traditionally, a private equity firm will use a little bit of its own money, you know, some investor money and a lot of borrowed money to buy a company. It will then try to execute financial and operational changes on the company with the aim of selling it for a profit a few years later. It's a it's a very simple, straightforward idea. I got interested in it by looking at sort of what are the different industries where private equity is active. And I mean, the short answer is kind of they're active everywhere. You know, you look at 2021, private equity firms, I think, executed $1.2 trillion in acquisitions in the US alone. So it's a not insignificant part of the GDP. But I was really interested in seeing, okay, are there specific industries where private equity seems to be particularly enamored? And so there have been some headline industries that I think, you know, your listeners are probably familiar with, whether it's nursing homes, physician staffing companies, and healthcare more broadly, prison services, single-family rental homes and mobile homes, um, yep. housing generally. And I think the int- one of the interesting sort of discoveries of this project, and you know, there are a lot of nuances to this, is that in a lot of ways, many private equity firms target businesses, not ones that cater to the rich, but rather the ones that cater to the poor, um, which was sort of an, uh, an interesting sort of discovery. And I think part of the reason is those are the industries where the firms are going to have a, a large ability to raise prices and potentially decrease quality care without consequence because the the customers really don't have an alternative. 
Yeah, I think that's been the journey of private equity. If you go back to its kind of foundational days, it was very much a different animal. It wasn't just a, a, a kind of conveyor belt of companies that we can take in, apply our model to, kick out the door. There were long-held acquisitions that where they really actually improved the business. And it wasn't necessarily with the view to selling it. It was a review to creating great businesses. So as you've kind of looked through the history of private equity, where do you think that may have changed? That's a great question. I'm not sure there's like a pivot moment. And I'll, I'll say, you know, in my mind, I think that there are basically three challenges with the private equity business model. And you have a very financially literate audience, so they might yeah. disagree with some some things that I'm saying. But I, I think the three basic problems are one that you just mentioned, which is a lot of private equity firms take a short-term perspective, invest for just a few years. Second is that they tend to extract a lot of fees and obviously layer up their companies with a lot of debt. And then the third, which is the part that sort of interests me as a lawyer, is um, they, they've been very successful at insulating themselves from liability for, for their, their portfolio company's actions. So to, to get to your, your sort of question, you know, when did this thing change? I, I think it's interesting in that I have seen, you know, there's a real spread in how different private equity firms approach this. Some firms take an extremely short-term perspective. And as a result, there are frequently problems with the businesses they buy. Other firms, some of the name brand firms, I think take a longer term perspective. And as a result, I think the investments are less problematic and even be successful. But I think as long as there has been really easy money for private equity firms to get access to, you know, it's going to incentivize sort of shorter and shorter term thinking. It's clear that the golden years of private equity have coincided with you know, this 10 years of zero interest rate. I mean, if, if you give these companies free capital, we, we know what they're going to do with it. So again, you know, you mentioned there about how they kind of avoid any liability for their actions with the company. So let's take a little detour down that road, because obviously with you as a, as a DOJ lawyer, that's your kind of bread and butter. And that's certainly a world that my listeners will be less familiar with. So, so take us down that journey as you, as you kind of looked into what you saw and what that portends for the industry. So I'm really interested in this part, and maybe I can kind of explain the challenge with, yeah. a, with a story. So Carlisle bought the nursing home HCR Manor Care in 2007. It was the second largest nursing home chain in the United States at the time. Carlisle then executed a lot of tactics that may be familiar to your audience, like a sale of leaseback. They did a dividend recapitalization, ultimately sort of drained manor care of a lot of its assets, and a lot of staff were let go. Complaints by nursing home residents spiked and so forth. When one family sues um, because their mother actually died in a facility, you know, she needed help to go to the bathroom. There wasn't the staff to help her. She falls and hits her head. She ultimately dies. They sue Carlisle for wrongful death. But at that point, Carlisle actually gets the case dismissed by saying, oh, no, no, we are not technically the owners of HCR Manor Care. Rather, we merely advise a series of funds whose limited partners through a series of shell companies ultimately own the assets of Manor Care. And that was enough to get uh, the case dismissed against them. And I think it illustrates a really interesting challenge that we've got with private equity, which is PE firms typically are able to effectively control the operations of their portfolio companies by choosing the management, choosing the board of directors and so forth. But because we have doctrines around what's called piercing the corporate veil, typically they are not held responsible for the actions of their portfolio companies. So, you know, to the econ students in your audience, it's sort of a classic principal agent problem. 
walk us through the, how that story motivated you and changed the way you looked at private equity. Was it that simple? The full conversation is available to subscribers to the copper and silver tiers of my website, grant-williams.com. Nothing we discussed should be considered as investment advice. This conversation is for informational and hopefully entertainment purposes only. So while we hope you find it both informative and entertaining, please do your own research or speak to a financial advisor before putting a dime of your money into these crazy markets.